You're listening to Story Warriors, the podcast that helps you craft great stories. Whether you're pitching investors, preparing a conference talk, writing copy, or even a book, a powerful story will help you connect with your audience and encourage them to take action. Thanks for joining Story Warriors. I'm your host, Jack Vincent. I have to admit I was nervous. I had accepted the offer to host a stage at a marketing conference in Berlin in the fall of 2010. The heavy hitter at that conference was none other than Chris Brogan. Chris had gazillions of followers on his blog and Twitter, and he was going to the speaker's dinner the night before. I was nervous, but eager to sit next to Chris. Well, I got what I wished for, and I didn't have to be careful. Chris is the nicest guy in the world and so generous, which I believe is part of his success. Chris is always giving value, spreading the love. He even introduced me at a mega conference in Boston, Inbound 2016. I reached out to him and said, would you introduce me? And he said, sure. Well, 10 years after Berlin, four years after Inbound 2016, He's the guest on this episode of Story Warriors. Chris has more than a few books out. I know he's working on one now. I nabbed his first one in Berlin 10 years ago. Trust agents, build influence, improve reputation, and earn trust. He's always updating himself, refreshing his brand. Today, he's the creator of Story Leader System. I'll stop gushing with all of this guy's cred. I'll just welcome... Chris Brogan. Chris, thanks for joining me on this episode of Story Warriors. Feels like only yesterday we were hanging out in Berlin, Jack. Always good to connect with you. That conference was an eye-opener for me. You were central to that. One of your messages then and ever since was always be giving. Those weren't empty words. Those weren't a slogan because in these 10 years, I've noticed that you are one of the most generous people I know. Really, I think generosity is part of your soul. It's part of your brand. I just want to know, where does that come from? Oh, well, I think I would be probably the right guy if I said that my parents taught me that. I mean, that's always a good answer. But I would also say that my answer is a little less than pure because my (laughs) real answer is that I I do so many bad things and wrong things and I'm such a bad person that if I just keep giving that maybe karma will re-tip in my favor. I mean, it's, it's kind of a, it's a bank account in my head. And I figure that if I could be as nice as I can humanly be, then maybe my misgivings in the universe will be somewhat overlooked, but who knows really? (laughs) Well, we're going to talk about imperfections in a moment. In fact, I'll get started with Ron right now. For the listener, Chris showed up to this podcast recording five days early. Uh, He messaged me and said, I'm in. And I scrambled and said, what? It's next week. And he said, oh, I'm so dumb, which is so endearing, Chris. I, I really mean it. It's so human. You're so transparent about your struggles and it's a tool of storytelling. The flawed characters are the most compelling. You often use the term dented, which I love. Not just about you, But when you appeal to us that you can be on my show and you can show your dents because I'm going to show my dents in personalities, 
and in personal brand. Talk to me a little bit about your philosophy of dented. So the idea of the word dented came up because there's a lot of other words that people use when we discuss our general misgivings in some way or another, our, our issues, our challenges, our problems, our past, you know? So someone maybe came from an abusive family and they try to hide it from everybody. I talked to a guy yesterday who had alcohol and substance abuse issues and uh, lost his license to a DWI and now runs a business that requires vehicles as part of the business. And so he can't drive in his own fleet. In my case, I have clinical depression. Uh, there's other ways that people can be, you know, have their challenges, but we're not broken and we're not several other labels. And I, I liked the idea of the, the word dented because, you know, there's a dent in the back of my car and it <laughs> happened years and years and years ago, really quickly after I got the car, I was staring into my uh, love's, my true love's eyes as I backed into a pole in a parking garage. Anyone alive would have fixed that dent. It was a brand new car. It was a shiny black Camaro and I put a dent in it. And what I thought in the moment was, you know, what do we most worry about in a brand new car? We worry that we're going to hurt it, dent it, scratch it, something. And I said, well, there's my dent. Like, I don't have to worry. Check that one off. And I like the idea that the car still runs. It drives very fast. It is still very sexy. And it has a battle scar to boot. I look at my car as the kind of thing that escapes a crime scene, not that it looks like it shows up to the red carpet. I think that. <laughs> All humans can exist if we accept that we're a little bit dented. All the things we think made us broken, flawed, or wrong might actually still be helpful to us in some ways, even if we don't want to accept some of what happened. Or let's say we don't want to approve of what happened. We can at least accept that it's there and keep moving forward. That's why there's the term dented. You are doing Facebook Live sessions just about every day. I often see you. One you had last week, which I jumped into and said, the flawed character is the most compelling character. And you were talking about that, also saying what's happening now, COVID-19, post-COVID-19, what we're seeing is people working at home, showing up with their hair messy, or walking off to the toilet without realizing they didn't turn off the camera, and people are finding it to be endearing. You said during this, this is an opportunity to bring business to the real human factor. Meetings from home, people make mistakes, kids appearing in the background. We are imperfect. Business is a lot more human than we originally allowed it to be portrayed. We don't have to go back to the old way. This is an opportunity. I ask you, what's it going to take for companies to be more human and be more real. Will companies make it all right to let people let their hair down? I feel there's what I want and there's what I think will happen. And what I want is that every company will go, oh, you know, we're better this way. We're really better when we realize that people are not human factory cogs. What happened is, you know, over time we evolved from the cottage system we, you know, we, we evolved from having our marketplaces be on the outside or inside of a castle somewhere uh, or at the crossroads of a major trade route. And then and the marketplace could then be anywhere. We told everybody out on their farms, get off your dumb farms and come work in our factories. We're going to make it better this way. And then we went, oh, wait, we don't need factories anymore. We shipped them to other countries that could do it for us. And then what's left, this is a very Western-centric perspective right now. I'm explaining this as a U.S. guy, but 
you know, we threw our factories all over the East. We threw them all over China and other, you know, India and other places. And then somewhere after that, we went, oh, wait, so if the U.S. and the, and the West doesn't need factories, we need to put all our workers in those factory buildings. I live in a factory building, by the way. There's beams and bricks and poles all around me. What we now need is we need our industrial age to turn into an information age, and we'll put everybody in cubicle farms because that's what humans have longed for for centuries is to feel like you know animals in a pen. I just feel like we seem like a good idea at the time is is the epithet, and I think that when we realize now in this world that oh wait we actually could do our job sitting in our house in our underpants, maybe business could could thrive on that. I don't think they will, Jack. I want them to. But what I hope that they'll pull from this, the story that a warrior can take from this is that they can be a lot more compassionate. They can be a lot more human. They can accept the flaws that don't impact the bottom line of the customer's delivery, even in the simplest and smallest of jobs. If my pizza delivery person looks a bit like a pirate, good for them. In fact, I have one that delivers that looks just like a pirate. He wears the bandana. <laughs> real, he has real life hair. examples. He's, a cheap Captain Jack Sparrow, but he delivers well. He's thorough. He does his thing. And I, I feel that I feel that that's the option. You know, that's the opportunity is if we can bring some us to it. Now there's places who won't. Disney won't. Disney has rules. They have, they need to make their cast a cast because the whole thing is a presentation and I get it, but there's so many businesses where that's not necessary. Will businesses show their dents. One thing is allowing their people to have dents and work from home and show up at that online meeting. Next year, when the dust settles on this, one thing is letting your people have dents, but what about the companies? Will they show their dents? You know, what marketing director is going to say, hey, CEO, let's show our dents? Oh, how I wish. There are just far too many signs that that'll never happen. There's only one story that gets told, which is the one that's the most beneficial for the uh, image of the enter, enter, enterprise. Sorry. So if we are, you know, I'm watching all these massive layoffs and I'm watching the way that they're handling them. And what's happening is that they're just, they're trying to tell a story about, well, we look forward to really delivering in a, in a forward facing way and blah, blah. And they, they almost in no way, it's like they rewrite the story as they're telling it. We just didn't need those. 800 people we had to let go. I don't even know why they were there in the first place. You know, they make it seem like that didn't even happen. I don't think they will, Jack. I think humans have to accept that they're dented. I don't think entities will because in, in some, there's two things that happen. One is we want to trust the entity. We want to trust that there is some kind of uh, continuity. For as much as anyone wants to say a bad thing about McDonald's, I can travel to McDonald's all over the world and I have a certain expectation of, of service. If I'm in some really podunk village and I find a McDonald's there, I know what I'll get there compared to any other restaurant. I think there's not, it's not that there's value, but there is something the human craves in that kind of continuity that will keep it from happening. Continuity in a story as well. This Sunday's post of yours, you got to sign up for Chris's posts, by the way. Check them out, chrisbrogan.com. You prefaced that post with, and it was so timely for this meeting, Chris, three types of business stories, mission stories, stories about reinforce the goals of the organization or the individual, belonging stories, stories that are about, am I where I should be internally and externally, and growth stories, stories that move toward accomplishing the mission. This week, with everything happening, you focused on belonging stories. 
talk to me, baby. Talk to me about your storytelling structures, because that is so critical. I'm a storyteller. I studied it for 40 years. First thing, get your structure right. Talk to me about your three structures. When I thought about Story Leader, I started from one very simple premise. Leaders are always told they should be using storytelling as part of their business. And when you hear that, you nod your head. Every leader on the earth goes, yeah, okay, yeah, stories, yeah. And then they say, yeah, I know how to tell stories. And they don't. I agree It's not that they're flawed. What, you know, that's not something most people learn. You know who learns that? People like Jack, who are artists and creatives and, and philosophers. Artists learn that. Titans of enterprise do not. Titans of enterprise look at that as that thing their kid does that they wish they didn't. So while being told that stories are important, they don't really understand why. My, my favorite quote about trying to get people to understand stories is that story is the best container of memory. When I tell you something about your job, I can tell you a bunch of facts, but you're not going to remember the facts. If I tell you a story that incorporates the facts, you'll remember the story. It's just how our human brains work. It's how we've conveyed information for millennia at this point. And it's got a better baud rate than anything else we do. Numbers don't stick in our head all that often. We usually kind of reinvent them as often as we can remember them. But carrying ideas around on numbers is like trying to serve yourself soup with a pencil. It doesn't (laughs) quite do the job. So I made up three story styles. One is called a mission story, which is like a mission statement, but statements stay still, stories move. So mission stories are anything that reinforces the mission. If our job is to make sure, well, I, I gave this moving company guy a story. I said, you know, we don't move things, we move lives. I said, so now let's tell the story around that. In this company, we decided that we're going to trust our employees to be trustworthy of moving your life from one place to another place so that you can establish the kind of life you want and the place you want it. As we started doing it, that makes the mission, you know, our mission is moving lives. So you don't have to think through don't bang stuff on the walls. Don't steal a box of things when you bring all the other boxes in. Don't leave the one you like back in the truck. It, it's pretty straightforward. You can get specific, but you start with that mindset. So then there's belonging stories. How do you know you're where you're supposed to be? I said to this guy, maybe your business is the kind of business where people who are a bit flawed have an opportunity, right? So you, you, you talk that up even more. You say, you know, maybe you've done some bad things in life. Maybe you've made some bad choices. Here's a good choice. And we're going to use it to set up a string of more good choices and let's work together. That's belonging. Oh, I'm supposed to be here. He doesn't care that I'm messed up because he's messed up. This is going to be a good place. And then there's growth. Growth comes in two styles. One is the very, uh, what you think of when you think of motivational speakers, good and bad, that kind of growth, you know, well, let me tell you this story about, you know, what it takes to succeed. And you, you know, you hear some canned piece of poo that someone's, you know, heard from someone else that wrote it from someone else. Or growth stories like correctional stories, meaning, well, let me tell you about this time I made a mistake. My storytelling, a massive amount of Chris Brogan storytelling are my flaws and my mistakes because I think that so few people show them that it becomes a, a business differentiator. So I tell growth stories a lot but I I tinge them with belonging so that people know they're supposed to be with me. I will repeat it. It's one of the things that I find so endearing about you. You are not afraid to talk about your flaws. Sometimes you talk about growth that you got from that. Sometimes you just say, I'm so dumb, see you next week. But it is very, very compelling. Mr. or Ms bulletproof, perfect, follow me and we shall always succeed, just doesn't cut it. Over the years, you post personal stuff 
and you go in chapters kind of thing. Three or four years ago, I noticed that you and your son were playing a lot of video games. And occasionally, you were talking about movies in that style, in that genre, for example, that you and he would see, whether it be online or out at the cinema. What movies are in that space, stories you love? The easy answer that comes to mind that's a fairly recent movie is an animated film. So there's one strike against it, because if we see animated, a lot of us immediately turn it off in our heads and say, well, that's for kids. Not smart people, but, you know, some people. And then the other thing that happens is that it's a Spider-Man story. So it's an animated superhero story. That's strike two. Strike three is everyone knows that Spider-Man is Peter Parker. This is telling a story from a different universe where the Spider-Man is a kid named Miles Morales. I guess we can throw strike four if you're racist because he's uh, black and uh, Hispanic. He's, he's a Latino and black person. So the story is called Into the Spider-Verse. It's a Spider-Man story. And you can see it on Netflix, uh, at least in the West here. I don't know, all over the world, we have different codes and different laws. Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse is a story where it's built on the idea that there are these multiple dimensions and they get ripped apart by this bad guy who is trying to restore. And, this, and the, you know, his, his, um, his compelling need is that his wife and son were lost. They were, they were dead. And he wanted to bring them back. And he found that, what if I went to a different dimension? I could just get my wife and child back from this other dimension. And then this challenge that that's what he wants to go after, his, his flaw as a, as a character is that he can't stand Spider-Man and, and good people in general. He's miffed by them and blames them for a lot of his failings. And so he wants to kill Spider-Man. Well, in the story, multiple Spider-People come through this dimensional rift. And so they're all kind of facing each other. And there's even a spider pig. It, does, it makes no sense except for the old-timey comic book fans who know that there's a character called Spider-Ham. And they threw it in to be funny, but it was also oddly touching. So that's all the, that's the mess of the story. What's interesting about the story is they start in a way that we call in media res, in the middle of the action. Yeah. You just get in there. What I use this movie to do is to explain to people the new way that people wish to consume stories. I don't mean people who want to savor. Jack likes to sit down to a nice meal. He likes to unfold the cloth napkin. I'm talking people with business need and a kind of intent to get to the end. More and more people want the facts and they don't want the, the pre-story and the preamble. And so the story starts in the action and it goes really fast. It presumes you know the story of Spider-Man. People who are paying attention to us right now are thinking, yeah, I know about Spider-Man, bitten by a spider, got it. You know, what else do I need to know? You don't, that's it, that's the story. Bitten by a spider, now he has powers. Everyone gets it. So they don't bother to re-explain that. They demonstrate it super fast, they make it like no big deal. The other thing that the story does is it has some inclusivity, it has belonging, because the very last part of the story is that Miles is saying, you know, before I became Spider-Man, I, I really thought there could only be one person behind that mask. But what you should know by now is that anybody could be behind that mask. You could be behind the mask. He breaks the fourth wall. He says, you could be behind that mask. And, and it sends a tingle through people. And at the time, when that movie came out, suddenly Instagram filled with a hashtag called spider Sona which were spider person personas of what if I were Spider-Man? This is how I'd probably look. And they made these cool, there were like 90,000 or so of them, really cool artistic renditions of if I were Spider-Man. And some were like, you know, big fat guy with a pizza Spider-Man. And there was 
little studying in the book Spider-Man and there were all kinds of types and all this energy you just heard me blurt into Jack's face is all about that's what a good story can do. A story can deliver so much and it's not like, gee whiz, I feel better, but it's like a software story. It's a technology and we can use it to deliver a lot of information that people need. Beautiful. Another thing that I heard you say very recently, I don't know if it was in one of the live sessions recently, kryptonite. And you, you know, sometimes I feel, did Chris get that from me? And sometimes I feel, did I get that from Chris? And other times I feel, God, you know, we just think alike. I honestly believe that. Kryptonite is something I've been saying for a long time. Heroes have their kryptonite. But what I don't like about kryptonite, it's this chemical. It's not some human trigger that brings him to imperfection. It's this chemical. But it is a good symbol in storytelling that we trip over the same stone repeatedly. How do you feel about that on our personal struggles in our stories? So you and I both owe it to Siegel and Schuster from the 1920s in creating Superman. It's interesting and of note to take from the times what was going on. Siegel and Schuster, of course, being two nice Jewish gentlemen, 1920s, they've escaped to America like so many have. They're writing a story about something that's very close to the uh, older Jewish traditions of the idea of a golem, which is a super being created by the people to protect the people. Superman is in many ways kind of an embodiment of that cast in American pants so that it could sell very well over in America where all things new and novel was the, the lesson of the day. Kryptonite came as a storytelling tool for them because they realized they had made the character too strong and they needed to have some opportunity in storytelling. It's a real awful crutch, but the tool is used as a really gangly, dumb, nobody cares about comics anyway crutch to say, here's this guy's flaw. So whenever you need him to do something you know, less than ultra powerful, here's how you'll do it. You'll just throw a little green rock in front of him and oh, oh no, now we have a challenge. Kryptonite, as you and I use it, and as, as the world has come to use it as kind of a, I mean, there's songs about it. There's, there's all kinds of songs that throw that phrase in. The way we use it is to say this is, you know, our weak spot, our flaw, our whatever. Shambhala Buddhists have a word for it called shempa. And yeah. shempa kind of means like a fish hook, something that keeps getting you every time. You know, exactly. there's a behavior, experience. It makes perfect sense, right? Or somebody that triggers us or that style of person that triggers yep. us. You're in the grocery store. The person in front of you waits until the person says the total before they hand the money instrument over. And you're like, did you not know money was the next part of this? Did you not have your money stuff out? And if you're me, you're behind them thinking, how many times have you been to a grocery store? This is not your first day on earth. There's Shempa, right? Yeah. So, and you're talking to me, man, because I'm the same guy behind the person in the, in the, in the store. And, I and by the way, stuff. I'm always the person who forgets that there's such a thing as money because I'm talking <laughs> to the, the person and I forget that I'm supposed to do my job. Pema Chodron from the Shambhala Buddhist, she said, you know, she's supposed to be the world's most famous Buddhist nun. And she's supposed to be the embodiment of incredible meditation. She goes, number one, I can't meditate for beans. I, I, I go off and think all the time. And I was like, I love you. Thank you for saying that. And then two, she said, oh, I'm not walking around like some embodiment of great. I yell at people in my car. You know, I'm just like you. I, I do all the things you do when you're mad. And when I read a news story I hate, I find myself shaking my fist at the screen. She says, it's not that you do or don't have kryptonite. It's not that you do or don't have shempa. The interesting part of a story is what do you do? 
What do you do when? So I deal with clinical depression. That means my bed is my favorite place, you know, for massive amounts of my life. That means that sometimes it, it, I always characterize it as driving around with the, the parking brake on, the handbrake on. What do I do in spite of that? What do I do because of that? What do I do to honor that? And what do I do to try to pretend it's not real? I think that's what makes any story interesting. And that's what makes business work better is if we can acknowledge where those hooks are, if we can acknowledge where our kryptonite is. The word accept means something different than we think it does. Accept just means I give that this is what it is. Accept doesn't mean that I'm committing to it. I'm not making a marriage out of it. It just means, yeah, that really still gets me. And if we can do this, there's power there that is stronger than the kryptonite. I believe, Chris, you're prolific. I really do. Look where you are. But I also know, just because I know you're human, I also know you have to have struggles in this creation, this production, this crafting, year in, year out, month in, month out, day in, day out. Kryptonite, Chris Brogan, aside from the clinical depression, but you can talk about that too. But as a creator, as a producer, as an artist in craft, what are some of your struggles in the crafting part? What, what are some of those struggles? Hey, if you're enjoying Story Warriors, please leave a review on iTunes, Spotify, Google, or wherever you found me. And if you're looking to sell with more success or pitch with more impact, well, that's what I do. I help solopreneurs, startups, and Fortune 500s alike sell more effectively. If you want to talk about the challenges and opportunities you're facing in driving your top line, send me an email at jack at jackvincent.com. Now let's get back to this episode of Story Warriors, the podcast for crafting great stories. As a creator, as a producer, as an artist in craft, what are some of your struggles in the crafting part? What, what are some of those struggles? My monster in creativity only has one origin and it has about 18 billion faces. And what it is, is that, so, so I, the things I do well Make, would, would make people extra sick if they knew how well I do them. Meaning when I write, I produce 2,000 words a day, every day, no matter what, no problem. Uh, they're not all the best words, but I produce 2,000 good words. I almost never edit. What you get is the end result of the first draft every single time. When I do go back and edit, the book is always better. The words are better. Anything I produce is better if I edit, but I almost never do. And it's good enough. And most people go, wow, that's good. That's crazy. My best work is the work I write spontaneously, which happens to most people. You know, you're mad at some guy at a traffic light and you're like, oh, and you write this great thing and create a great thing. All that part is enough to make most creatives want to stab me. I'm really good <laughs> at that. You've heard me so far this whole interview. I never say nice things about myself. I know I am a master at that. What I'm not a master at is really taking it to that next level and elevating it. I make great fast line cook food. I do not make chef food, but I make interesting enough food that you want to eat at my street place versus the chef. I'm, I'm the guy that like a Bourdain goes to visit and then goes back to being Bourdain. Rest his soul. What my monster is in creativity and everything else is I feel like my 
business and my art. And, and, and this, this extends into what I sell because what I sell is my creativity a thousand percent of the time. It's all based on, is Chris smart enough? Is Chris interesting enough? Is this thing he's selling me worth my time? And when people don't buy, it is basically your seventh grade, you know, like age 12 or 11 birthday party that you throw and you invite these people you perceive to be your friends and no one comes. You are sitting there with your parents like a loser and there's a lot of cake and there's a lot of little hats and you've had all these games planned and there's no one at your party. That is me all the time, repeatedly. If someone doesn't love my idea, if enough people don't come and lavish praise on it, I, I tell people all the time, there's so many quotes out there about how to like ignore critics, but praise and criticism are both the same weapon. They're both the same enemy. And that's part of why I, you know, really stuck to Buddhism when I figured it out in 2012. Like I thought that this is a good idea. I should become Buddhist. It's because I need neither the praise nor the criticism. I need to, I need to not think of it as my seventh grade birthday party. I have to think this work is helping someone. My favorite book I ever wrote out of all my books is The Freak Shall Inherit the Earth. It was uh, 2015. It was a mainstream book. And I have it. a few thousand people bought it. Thank you. A few thousand people. Business people, nobody bought it. Nobody hired. I got zero speeches. I mean, zero, not a speech in sight, which is how I make my business is speaking and consulting. That's my big dollars. No one wanted it. The book could have been called Forget About This Guy. He only likes little people who don't have 20,000 bucks. <laughs> and so that's my monster. Um, my next book is who do I got to make out with around here to get a business job? It's not. I'll tell you, <laughs> Jack, this is like an exclusive <laughs> to Story Warriors. The book I intend to write and the book I am writing right now is a book that would be the sequel to Freak Shell Inherit the Earth, which I think is my favorite book I ever wrote. And this is sort of business companies be damned because if I do it well enough, they'll get it too and they'll buy it. Freaks, freaks didn't make sense to them. They hated it. There were bats all over the cover. This one is a little bit more packaged, but if I do it right, it is deep and into the heart of what I really most want people to know before I die. If I do it wrong, it'll look like a business book on a shelf full of business books that we all say we read, but we all lie. <laughs> yeah, I read the first chapter, found an abstract online and, and read that, which I have done, but not with your books. You always, you always engage me. Free shall inherit the earth. I'm a solopreneur. I'm a freelancer. I can see how afterwards you look back and said, my God, corporations didn't hire me. Knowing the book, knowing you, knowing corporations, I can see how that happened. I'm an author as well. And books get you speaking gigs. Books and speaking gigs get you inbound. Clients knocking on your door. You can sell them or not, but you've, you've got the, the action there. And so you made a mistake if that was what you were going for. Now. You hang out with some cool people. You have access to some cool people. You are in touch and connected to cool people. And I know that you're a reader too. Who are some writers that you hang with or not? Who are writers and storytellers and influencers today that you hang with or dead for centuries? Who do you love? Who do you admire as storytellers? Oh, see, I'm like you. I love so many people. I mean, if I, if I, who do I love? That's a whole other episode of Story Warriors. But I think that, let me walk through that just a tiny bit. 
So I, a lot of my friends are authors. You know, our joke has been books are the new bands. You know, when I was in high school, everybody had a band, even though they were all bad. <laughs> I didn't hear that before. So books are the new bands. I feel like, well, and, and by the way, it's an interesting time. People are reading less and less. So people like us who love books are absolutely the freaks now. It's all video, baby. All video. You know who bristles against that the most are the absolute minority percentage of people who still cling to the idea that books are great. And I will be one of them until I'm dead. I like so many people's books and ideas. A storybook that I love so much that I bought so many times that they started sending me cases at the publisher was Donald Miller's older book, A Million Miles in a Thousand Years. I bought one. I bought five. I bought 10 more. At the time, Michael Hyatt, who now has a whole other business, he was the guy running Thomas Nelson Publishing. He said, can I just send you a box? Like, it's getting weird. I said, (laughs) okay. And so I started giving away the ones he sent me. And then I ran out. So I started ordering them again. He goes, stop it. And then he sent me another box. I just liked the book. That's the only time I've ever done that in my history. I just felt so many people needed that book. It was a weapon. Richard Branson, Sir Richard Branson, Business Stripped Bear. I think that book was proof that the things, and by the way, I bought that in Berlin on my flight home. No um, kidding. I bought that at the airport. And I think that Business Stripped Bear was confirmation that you could run a business with a very specific kind of mindset and not everyone else's mindset. I interviewed Branson for Success Magazine, and I was his first ever Skype video call uh, years ago. No and he was very lovely, but felt a little awkward because he didn't know me from anybody. And it was, so it was a great conversation. Can't say I hang with him, Jack, but I'll pretend I do. He okay. did invite me to Necker, but I found from everybody in the world that that's just like a thing he says. He kind of means it. There's so many great people. I've never met Annie Prue who wrote the book, The Shipping News, but it taught me brevity. You wouldn't know it from my answers in this interview. I love brevity. There's so many friends of mine. It would be weird to name because it would almost sort of seem like that roster, like we walk down the line and say, good game, good game. I'm always on the lookout for, you know, what's a book that's going to change my perspective? Uh, Ryan Holiday. I like Ryan Holiday books. He's, he's a swell writer. He, he always throws a bomb in there. And someone in the audience is saying, Brogan, you're not naming females. I read female authors. I'm full of, Limitless by, uh, oh my gosh, uh, Laura Glassing, Odding. I, I'm trying to think of who else I'm, I have that is sticking off the side of my head. Plenty of great writers out there. There's so many interesting things. And of those people, I mean, when I hang with authors, it's just like the few times I've had a chance to hang with rock bands. You know what you least talk about? You don't talk about books. You don't talk about music. We, when I hang out with um, the guys who are all in the band that supports Slash, you know, from Guns N' Roses, it's uh, Miles Kennedy and the Conspirators is the other band. When I hung out with that whole band, but not Slash, we all talked about science fiction movies. So that's how that went. I uh, used to hang out with athletes in my previous carnation in a city, an event going on, you just don't talk about it. If they bring it up, sure, go there. But you don't talk about the sport unless right. they unless they do. Tough day, man. You know, I'm going home tomorrow. I got eliminated. But you're right. Talk to them like they have a family to get back to or all of those human things that we have in common. I do have a name drop story, Jack. So a long, long, long time ago, I was at Le Web, uh, which was Loïc L'Amour's big event in Paris. My first and only time in Paris, by the way. I'm talking to this, you know, sort of oldish gentleman, older gentleman, I should say. He was, at the time in my mind, he was a nice older gentleman. And we're talking, we're talking and whatever. And he's asking me kind of questions. And I think he'd seen my, my talk. And so we're talking about that and um, shakes hands. I said, I'm sorry, I missed your name. He says it again. And I was like, oh, that's funny. I only know one person named Paolo. <laughs> 
Paulo Coelho. <laughs> and he says, uh, oh, that's so funny. He goes, yeah. And he says, it's me. And I was like, oh, good. He goes, yeah, you know, you, you probably read my book, The Alchemist. And I said, no. And he <laughs> laughed and laughed and laughed. And I said, well, I don't like um, parable books. And he laughed harder. He goes, you know, no one talks like that to me. There was very like reverent. He goes, it's very funny. And I said, I'm, I mean, no disrespect. He goes, I take none. And we, uh, we did a few interviews together on video a few times. And he was very lovely. We talked about archery, which is another one of his passions. But talk about a name drop. But it was about that we don't talk about writing. And when I did, I kind of insulted him. <laughs> I'm going to drop a quick one on you. My second week working in tennis, I'm in Hamburg at a tournament in my hotel. My, my, Hey, come on down to dinner. You know, we got to get to dinner kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Let me go freshen up. I go freshen up, come back out eighth floor, hit the, hit the button for the lift for the elevator. Do, 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 do wait. Ding. The door opens up. And who is the only person in the lift? Andre Agassi. Oh, and Wow coolest guy in the world. I have a lot of time for Agassi. The conversation actually went toward some of the foundations that he was working on. And oh, today, cool. yeah, like, why do I want to talk about the match that I saw him play this afternoon? They have stories too. Everybody has a story and Absolutely. they don't always want to talk about the one that we see on TV. Cool stuff. Chris, what's next? What are you working on now? Title of a new book, topic of a new book, platform that you want to launch what are you working on that was going to continue spreading your love to the universe so announcing that story leader thing in january was big for me because one of the things that had happened to me is that i hadn't somebody said very nicely they said chris you you really haven't stuck a flag in the ground anywhere lately you haven't no one knows what you're about anymore and I thought, wow, that's terrible. And, I, and it, But it's kind of true. I was just sort of a, a vagabond between albums, so to speak. You know, I didn't really have, I never think of myself as an artist. I really loathe the concept. I think of myself as a worker. I'm a business person. But I think the world values my contributions in that method. If there's no story, if there's no book, there's no Chris, because that's what he does. So I'm out here struggling so hard to try to sell stuff to businesses. And they're like, I don't, I don't want you. They want my big idea and then they really want me. So that's my precursor. So I launched Story Leader and it's a little bit slow going insofar as anytime I launch something without a book, it's like, for me, it's like walking around saying, I've got this new album I'm working on that you can't listen to. Well, <laughs> no one cares, you know? Right. So then they ask me about the hits, but the hits are 10 years old and we already know that song. And they're not like rock and roll songs. They don't, no one like lost their virginity reading trust agents. So like, I don't have that on them. So, and if you did, don't share the story. So I, I have a new book coming called The Backpack. You have what you need to lead and win. And you have what you need is kind of the most important part of that thing. And that's because right at the start of this, this pandemic, I saw a lot of people shoveling advice out as fast as they humanly could. Here's five ways to stay, you know, very busy during this outbreak and blah, 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 how to work at home better. I was like, you know what? We don't need any of that. There's no one sitting at their, their laptop in their you know, underpants on Zoom saying, I wonder how I could work better during this quarantine. It's just not there. So I extrapolated on that and I was like, the idea of a backpack is that it's mobile, it's small, 
It's a little less formal than a briefcase because I, I wanted to write this book years ago and someone said, CEOs don't carry backpacks. And I, I said at the time, yeah, you're probably right. And then I think about it later and I was like, the CEOs I like carry backpacks. Absolutely. And that's where I went back to it. So basically I have a book that's sort of split in half. The first part is about what's in the backpack and the second's about the world outside. And it kind of talks about what you started this conversation with, which is fun because we get back to the beginning. It's callback. It's how stories are structured. It's about how in a world, in a world where <laughs> the ground is pretty soft right now and there's a lot of sand and you can't really build a good foundation on sand, how do you go forward? What do you do next? How do you embrace and accept a world that's changed dramatically in a small few months? People saying the world is changing is a several thousand year old storyline. Mine is, here's some tools that might be useful for today. And step one is not build a factory. Step one is figure out your story and figure out how your story plays with the other stories in the world, which sounds a little bit in your head, but it's like everything if you think about it. If you can't, if you can't explain your narrative to what you're intending to deliver to the world, then it's going to be a lot harder to understand and interact with someone else's narrative of what they need out of the world. And so that's the book, The Backpack. There's your story. Wonderful. I wish you a lot of luck with that. When will it be out? That I don't know. Um, I have been writing and throwing away books since 2015. So <laughs> I'm not going to make any promises anymore because I've been on, I don't know how many podcasts in five or more years saying, oh, like eight more months. What happens though, as you know, from, from writing and publishing a book, especially if I give this particular book to the mainstream, there's this thing called um, a book publishing kimchi we're in which I hand them the final work and then they sit on it for I don't know how many months in a jar and then I can't make any edits in that several months in a jar and then the book pops out. So it's months after I still want to talk about the book is when it'll come out. Incredible. Great having you on the show. Where can you be found online? I know chrisbrogan.com. What else? Facebook, these other platforms. Where are you, man? Pretty much anywhere but TikTok and Snapchat. <laughs> um, I've kind of put my grumpy old man foot down. I'm not doing it. I'm not going to show you weird dances on TikTok. I'm 50. I'm okay with not being there. Uh, but I'm on YouTube, uh, youtube.com slash Chris Brogan, twitter.com slash Chris Brogan. I go everywhere and get my name. The only place I probably haven't is, is TikTok. So I guess you could go take Chris Brogan on TikTok. Uh, yeah, I'm going to run out and do that right away. I couldn't get my name on Instagram either. So I'm strategic poet. Jack slash strategic poet. I might change that if they let me. That's where we uh, find Chris Brogan, folks. Chris, always lovely connecting with you. I'm glad that over the years we stay connected and not just putting likes or comments uh, or hearts on each other's posts. Every now and then we say, a couple of months ago, I think a couple of weeks ago, we said, hey, how you doing? Let's have a conversation. I always love doing that with you. And the next time I'm in the Northeast, God knows when that will be. I'm going to come to Boston area. We're going to have another cup of coffee. I'm down for it anywhere on the planet, Jack Vincent. I always think of your name as, and your, your, your everything is as very akin to that most interesting man in the world guy from the beers. I, I always think that, you know, you could really play up this insane man of the world thing and who would know because it's a perfect name. You have a perfect look. I think you would be, you know, a story warrior to deliver on whatever story you want to tell at whichever bar. It would be fun. Oh my God. Coming from you, coming from anybody, that's a compliment. Coming from you and the way we connected around brands and things like that. I am touched. I am touched. 
You, you were 10 feet tall the day I met you. I was like, wow, who's that guy? That's all I remember from that day. Incredible. I was a little nervous, but nerves focus us. And you put me at ease. Thank you so much. A decade long and counting, my impression is very intact. So thank you, Jack. Thank you, Chris. Thanks for being part of Story Warriors today. Thanks so much. Hey, thanks for listening to this episode of Story Warriors, the podcast for crafting great stories. If you've got something you want me to cover or an idea for an episode or any suggestions at all, I'd love to hear from you. Check out my website and send me a message at jack at jackvincent.com. Let's connect on social too. And if you've enjoyed the episode, please leave a review on iTunes, Spotify, Google, Stitcher, or wherever you found me. Thanks again and hope you join me for next week's episode of Story Warriors.